Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome back, everyone. It's July, and summer is officially here. That's especially true about the benefits updates we have to report on today. Summer here, summer there, and summer on vacation. Well, it would not be a talking benefits intro without at least one terrible pun. So let's leave it at that and dive right in. We have a lot to cover, so Justin, let's start with the two-minute recap. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, Just a reminder to our listeners that we are recording this on Tuesday, July 11th at 2 p.m. Central Time. So here's an update on everything that has changed since our last episode. In a recent episode, we had discussed a single-payer health care bill that was proposed in California. On June 1st, the California Senate passed a single-payer bill, the Healthy California Act. On June 23rd, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, not the Nationals' third baseman, put the bill on hold in the Assembly Rules Committee, calling it, quote, woefully incomplete. Although he supports the concept of a single-payer system, he said the bill doesn't address issues like financing, delivery of care, and cost management. Political experts think it won't pass in 2017 due to its cost and the ACA uncertainty. But Rendon suggested that that the Senate try to flesh out a bill for 2018. Also in California, we had discussed their state-sponsored retirement savings program. On June 27th, Governor Jerry Brown signed the state budget, which included some changes to their Secure Choice program. The updated language attempts to allow the Secure Choice Board to self-certify that the program is not subject to ERISA and limit statutory language that mandated the DOL safe harbor rules since the rules have been disapproved. Moving on to the conflict of interest rule, on June 30th, the DOL released a request for information seeking public input that could form the basis of new exemptions or changes to the rule and prohibited transaction exemptions. They are also looking for input on extending the January 1st, 2018 applicability date for best interest contract exemptions. The latter question has a 15-day period for comments, which began on July 6th and ends on July 21st. And all other comments are due within 30 days, or August 7th. Next, on June 8th, the House passed the Financial Choice Act, which is essentially the Dodd-Frank Reform Bill. It contains a provision to repeal the fiduciary rule, and requires the SEC to investigate the impact of such a rule and conduct an economic analysis. It specifies that if the DOL is to issue another fiduciary rule under ERISA, it has to, quote, substantially conform with SEC standards. The bill passed on partisan lines, and there is some uncertainty whether it will pass the Senate, which could be split into smaller bills to pass. Moving on to paid sick leave, which we had also discussed last month, Uh, Many paid sick leave laws went into effect on July 1st, including Arizona, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Cook County, Illinois. And finally, Washington State just passed their paid family leave legislation on June 30th, which was signed by Governor Jay Inslee on July 5th. 
Well, Justin, you just broke the record because that was way longer than two minutes. Well, that sounds like a lot of activity for the lazy days of summer. What happened to the idea that summer was all about vacation? I bet the Senate members are bummed that their August vacations are being postponed two weeks so they can keep working on health care reform legislation. Yes, they've certainly been working on that. There are news stories every day about their efforts. Kelly, can you please fill us in? Certainly. In late June, the Senate released a discussion draft of their bill called the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or BCRA. They started with the House bill, the American Health Care Act, also known as AHCA, and made some significant changes. Let's start with some of the similarities the Senate bill has with ACA, the Affordable Care Act. BRCA would still require coverage for dependents up to age 26 if a plan covers dependents, not allow exclusions for pre-existing conditions, not allow annual lifetime limits on coverage of essential health benefits, limit waiting periods to 90 days at most, provide enhanced claims and appeals provisions, and require first dollar coverage of preventive services. Now, doesn't the BCRA allow states to apply for waivers that may allow them to change some of the requirements that you just mentioned? Yes, that's true. The Senate bill does allow for state waivers, although the states would need to provide for alternative means and requirements for comprehensive coverage, reducing average premiums, and increasing enrollment. But that's a lower standard than what ACA requires to qualify for a waiver. Kelly, you just did a comparison with the ACA. How does the BCRA compare with the House Bill AHCA? Good question, Justin. There are similarities and differences between the two bills. Both the House and Senate bills roll back the penalties for the individual and employer mandates to zero, basically effectively eliminating those requirements. They also both make health accounts like health savings accounts and healthcare flexible spending accounts more attractive by changing distribution penalties, contribution limits, and allowing coverage of over-the-counter drugs, and both bills delay the Cadillac tax to 2026. Now the Cadillac tax seems to be universally disliked, so why are they keeping it? The tax is likely being kept only for, for revenue scoring reasons. In other words, to balance out some of the costs of the bill. Some people predict that the Cadillac tax will be delayed further and possibly repealed entirely in the future. And Kelly, how about the differences between BCRA and the House bill? Instead of the individual mandate, the AHCA would allow insurers to impose a 30% premium surcharge if individuals buy coverage after a lapse of 63 days or more. The BCRA takes a different approach, however. If individuals have a coverage lapse of 63 days or more in the prior 12-month period, they will be subject to a six-month waiting period for coverage. All of these approaches, meaning the individual mandate, the higher premium for lapses, and the longer waiting period for lapses, guard against adverse selection. Kelly, in the benefits world, we hear that term thrown around a lot. Can you clarify what that means? Sure. As it relates to health insurance, adverse selection happens when sicker people or those who present a higher risk to the insurer buy health insurance while healthier people don't buy it. Adverse selection can also happen if sicker people buy more health insurance or more robust health plans while healthier people buy less coverage. Obviously, this puts the insurer at a higher risk of losing money through claims than it had predicted. 
If adverse selection is allowed to go on unchecked, health insurance companies would become unprofitable and eventually go out of business. That makes sense. Thank you, Kelly. Another difference between the two bills is the basis for tax credits. The House bill proposed a system of age-based tax credits for those who can't afford coverage. But the Senate bill's tax credits are based on age, income, and geographic location. The Senate bill BCRA would also amend ERISA to allow for the creation of a new association health plan option for small employers called small business health plans. AHCA does not include this provision. The Senate bill adopts various provisions proposed in the House bill, but pushes the effective date for those provisions out an extra year. Well, the next big question is, how did it score with the Congressional Budget Office? Overall, it scored slightly better than the House bill. But even so, it is estimated that if the Senate bill is enacted, there would be 22 million more uninsured people in the country by 2026 than if ACA stayed in place. Zeroing in on coverage provided by employers, the CBO report shows that 4 million people would lose employer-sponsored coverage in 2018 due to the proposed elimination of the employer and individual mandates. The CBO said that number would be 2 million less under AHCA. The BCRA would reduce the cumulative federal deficit over the 2017 to 2026 period by $321 billion compared to $202 billion under the AHCA. Kelly, what's happening with this bill now? Well, the Senate had hoped to vote on the BCRA before the July 4th recess, but they didn't have enough votes to pass it, so they delayed the vote. Revisions to the bill have been proposed. One such revision was proposed by Senator Cruz, who suggests amending the draft bill to allow insurers to offer low-cost, low-coverage plans, as long as they still offered at least one ACA-compliant plan. These low-cost, low-coverage plans could ignore the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions and therefore could charge more to those with such conditions. And they wouldn't have to cover essential health benefits. GOP senators have asked for additional CBO scores of the revised bill, one score with the Cruz Amendment and one score without the revision. As of this recording, those scores have not been released. So the next big question, will the Senate have to postpone their summer vacation even further? Yes, that's the big question. We'll have to wait and find out. Rumor has it that the latest version of BCRA will be released on July 13th. Keeping up through this season of change for healthcare reform is much easier with ACA University, our virtual learning center. It offers webcasts, ACA FAQs, articles, analysis, timelines, and the latest regulatory announcements. Check it out at ifebp.org ACAU. A brand new resource you can find on ACA University is our survey report called Employer Pulse Check, the Future of ACA. We deployed this survey in late June to our members, and we received responses from 727 HR benefits professionals and trustees representing all of our membership sectors, public employers, corporations, and multi-employer plans. Respondents answered the survey questions from the perspective of their roles as plan sponsors and fiduciaries. Respondents were first asked whether they support a full repeal of the ACA. 
While 19% supported a full repeal, 71% opposed a complete repeal. Respondents were also asked how their organizations would handle ACA provisions that were already implemented into their plans if ACA was to be repealed. 21% stated that they would keep all of the implemented provisions in place, while more than 41% said they would keep the majority of provisions in place. Overall, less than 1% of respondents said that they would rescind all ACA provisions that they've implemented into their plans. And finally, respondents were asked to tell us their support as plan sponsors of specific health care reform provisions from ACA, AHCA, and the BCRA. The top five provisions with plan sponsor support are, first, the tax-favored status of employer-provided health care coverage for employers, and second, the tax-favored status of providing that coverage for workers. The mental health benefit parity, where the same level of benefits is provided for mental health as for other medical conditions the expanded use and flexibility for health savings accounts, and the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions. And the provisions with the least support are state-based high-risk pools for the sickest individuals, increased age-based premium differentials between younger and older individuals, a limit on health flexible spending account FSA salary reductions, premiums based on medical experience, and lastly, the Cadillac tax, which as we know is the excise tax on high cost plans. So you can view the full report as well as the complete collection of International Foundation research findings at ifevp.org research. And remember, when he's not hosting this podcast, Justin is our senior research analyst at the foundation, so you know that these reports are totally awesome. Wow. Thank you for that praise, Julie. (laughs) Kelly, uh, last time we discussed the health insurance industry and the ACA exchanges or marketplaces. And there seemed to be some up and downs, but mostly downs, sort of like our big yellow slide at the Wisconsin State Fair. Is there anything new on that front? There continues to be a lot of volatility in that area, Justin. The Trump administration continues to commit to paying the cost-sharing subsidies only on a month-to-month basis. The numbers of insurers that are willing to offer coverage in 2018 has decreased, although a couple of insurers have decided to step in and fill some of the voids. The deadline for insurance companies to have filed their applications and premium rate tables for the 2018 exchanges was June 21st. But some insurers asked states for an extension because of the uncertainty surrounding the future of ACA. This resulted in several states pushing back these deadlines. Based on the premium rates already submitted by insurers, Many sources are reporting that average premium increases for 2018 will be in the double digits, somewhere in the range of 10 to 50 percent. Some experts suggest that rates have spiked in the last few years because of insurers initially underpricing their insurance policies on the exchanges. The cost of exchange premiums in 2018 is not the only issue. There are additional concerns about whether all areas in the country will have adequate coverage and options on the exchanges. Yeah, Kelly, I just saw some news about that. Uh, There was a recent analysis by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and USA Today that determined that more than 1,370 counties now have only one insurer that will sell on those ACA exchanges in 2018. And about 40 counties will have no insurer at all. 
Although costs are a concern for insurers, the analysis reports that the driving factor for the insurer exodus is uncertainty about the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Wow, that's really interesting, Justin. Thanks for sharing that. Well, shifting gears, another hallmark of the summer for benefit nerds like us is the decision announcements at the end of June from the U.S. Supreme Court. Julie, were there any big cases related to benefits announced this summer? Nope, there was nothing earth-shattering, nothing that we were waiting for with bated breath like we have in the past. But that does remind me, uh, in June 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that same-sex marriage is legal throughout the United States. That case, called Obergefell v. Hodges, grew out of several lower court cases dealing with the constitutionality of state-level bans on issuing same-sex marriage licenses and on recognizing marriages performed elsewhere. In Obergefell, the Supreme Court ruled that all states must issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and that all states must also recognize same-sex marriages performed in other states or countries. That's right. That issue had been moving through the lower court system for a few years, hadn't it? Yes, Kelly. There had been several cases filed in different states and districts dating back to 2012. Four different district courts of appeal ruled that bans were unconstitutional. But in 2014, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that bans were constitutional, and that paved the way for the Supreme Court to take up the case. Uh, Julie, two questions for you. The first question, how do you pronounce O... Obergefell so well. <laughs> well, I actually saw a, vi a YouTube video where he said it himself, okay. so I, I'm pretty sure I've got it right. Okay. Uh, and the second question is, um, how did that decision impact employee benefits? That's a great question too, okay. Justin. We've been watching the issue of benefits for same-sex couples for a while now. Going back even further to June 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the case U.S. versus Windsor struck down a section of the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, that defined for federal purposes the word marriage to mean a legal union between one man and one woman, and the word spouse to mean an opposite-sex husband or wife. That ruling changed how employers offered benefits to same-sex spouses because federal rules that applied to offering benefits to opposite-sex spouses now also applied to same-sex spouses. But employers still faced uncertainties because the Windsor ruling didn't change state legislation and rules. Some of employers' benefit administrative challenges involve things like state tax issues, reporting, and documentation. So after the Obergefell ruling in 2015, these uncertainties for the most part were resolved and employers were able to consistently apply benefit rules to all spouses. Well, thanks for that recap, Julie. But one question, why are you bringing up these cases now? <laughs> I know it might seem like history, but there is a reason. And there's been recent activity involving same-sex spousal benefits in Texas. On June 30th of this year, the Texas Supreme Court announced a decision that challenged the City of Houston's employee benefits policy for same-sex spouses. In this case, which is called Pigeon v. Turner, the court ruled that while same-sex marriage is legal under Obergefell, the, quote, reach and ramifications, unquote, of the rights of gay couples still have to be determined. Julie, can you give us a little background about this Texas case? Sure. 
Back in November 2013, the City of Houston started offering same-sex spousal benefits based on legal advice that they received after the Windsor decision was announced. One month later, two city residents filed suit against the city, challenging this policy as spending significant funds on an illegal activity. Now, at the time, Texas did not allow or recognize same-sex marriage. The trial court issued a temporary injunction prohibiting the city from offering benefits to same-sex spouses who'd been married in another state or country. Now, while the appeal was pending, the Obergefell decision was announced. The appeals court then lifted the injunction and sent the case back to the trial court. The plaintiff, Pigeon, instead asked the Texas Supreme Court to review the case. In Pigeon's opinion, even if the Obergefell decision recognizes a fundamental right to same-sex marriage and requires Texas to license and recognize same-sex marriage, it does not recognize a fundamental right to spousal employee benefits, nor does it require states to give what he called taxpayer subsidies to same-sex couples. In its analysis of the issue, the Texas Supreme Court acknowledges that the Obergefell decision needs to be considered, but the court also states that the U.S. Supreme Court did not address and resolve the publicly funded spousal benefit issue in their decision. So what happens next? Well, the case has been sent back to the district trial court in Houston for a decision. And according to a statement from the mayor's office, while the case is pending, the city will continue paying spousal benefits to all eligible employees. Now, reaction to the court's decision has been divided. Opponents of same-sex marriage are hailing it as a victory. On the other hand, supporters of same-sex marriage say the Obergefell decision should have settled these issues. Looking more broadly, there are additional legal cases pending related to the Obergefell decision. Legal experts expect decisions in these other cases will further define the reach and scope of the Obergefell decision. So stay tuned. Thanks, Julie. That is a very interesting case. For our next news story, Justin's going to update us on another topic, apprenticeships. Yes, thank you, Kelly. So on June 15th, President Trump signed an executive order to expand apprenticeship programs and reform, quote, ineffective education and workforce development programs. The federal government is to promote apprenticeships and workforce development programs while easing regulations and reducing or eliminating taxpayer support for ineffective programs. The DOL, Commerce, and Education Departments are to consider proposing regulations to promote the development of programs by, quote, qualified third parties. Some of these third parties could include trade and industry groups, nonprofit organizations, unions, companies, and joint labor management organizations. The executive order also calls for a Department of Labor task force to be created, which is tasked with submitting a report to the president, which includes federal initiatives to promote apprenticeships, administrative and legislative reforms that would facilitate the formation and success of apprenticeship programs, the most effective strategies for creating industry-recognized apprenticeships, and finally, the most effective strategies for amplifying and encouraging private sector initiatives to promote apprenticeships. So stay tuned on that. And just to let our listeners know, the topic of apprenticeship and workforce development is one of the foundation's strategic initiatives, uh, so we've been paying close attention to that. And school may be out for the summer, but many apprenticeship programs are still in full swing. 
Stay in the know by visiting the Foundation's newly remodeled Apprenticeship Resources webpage at ifebp.org slash apprenticeship resources. You'll find the latest news, articles, and research, as well as information about the Foundation's newest e-learning course, Financial Tools for the Trades, designed to help apprentices build a solid financial foundation. On a different note, early congratulations to Justin and his fiancée, Heather, who will be getting married on September 3rd. I'm sure many newlyweds don't realize all the benefit ramifications of getting married. But Justin, we know you're an exception and have things like coordination of benefits on your mind. Are you including that in your vows? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to start with that. <laughs> and related to coordination of benefits, we had a recent chat with Chris Brecht, longtime foundation volunteer, about this very topic. Let's listen in. Today I'm chatting with Christopher Brecht, CEO of Carde Associates in Columbia, Maryland. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Glad to be here. So can you start off by telling our listeners what you specialize in, what your organization specializes in? Well, Carde Associates is a third-party administrator for Taft-Hartley Funds. Um, we specialize in pension, health and welfare, and apprenticeship funds for the uh, Taft-Hartley universe. And how long have you been in the industry? Uh, for about 28 years now. So over those 28 years, I'm sure you've got some pretty interesting stories. Can you share one with us, please? So sure. True story. I got a call the other day from a trustee of one of our trust funds, and it's in the um, construction industry. And they want to know how coordination of benefits works. So he said there's a participant who has a dependent daughter, and um, she just got married. So who would be the primary person for her? Well, the problem is that she got married to a gentleman who is also in the same fund as her father. So he said, okay, but she's married, so therefore she should be on the husband's policy. And I said, it's not quite that simple. And I said, so how old is she? And I think she was 24. And I said, well, is your um, father still active or retired? And he said, well, she's, he's active. And I said, well, believe it or not, the father is primary and her husband. He goes, no, that can't be right. Because, you know, she's married and her father, you know, her father gave her away. She's married. Now she's under her husband. There's no way. And I said, well, that is the way the coordination of benefits rule. He said, that makes no sense. Use some other words than that. But the idea is that coordination of benefit rules have never been changed from when they were implemented due to ACA. Right. So once you made people eligible till age 26, these rules that made perfect sense at the time have some unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing, trying to reconcile that, because um, in the layman's terms, you know, in their mind, once you're married, you should be on your husband's policy, mm -hmm. and you shouldn't be responsible um, of your um, father. Now, where this becomes a problem is, guess who has to pay the deductibles and the out-of-pocket? It all counts against the father, not against, right. not against her and her husband. <laughs> wow. So what's the moral of your story, Chris? That is well-intended as the government is, there is lots of things to clean up with these various laws and regulations to be able to have an end result that resembles what they wanted. Christopher Brecht, CEO of Carde Associates, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for that interview, Justin. Chris always has great stories, and this one is no exception. Coordination of benefits is a tricky subject, and mixing in ACA requirements like covering dependents to age 26 can make things especially confusing. 
definitely. But it's a good reminder that despite all the updates we give you each month, ACA is still the law. And as benefits professionals, we have to stay compliant with it. That's a very good point, Julie. And on that note, let's bring this episode to a close and go enjoy that beautiful July weather. Thank you all for joining us and we'll chat with you again in August. In the meantime, please rate us or give us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners to find us. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.